Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Chapter 45, we are slowly approaching the end of Genesis as we've been in this a year and a half. When you've got 50 chapters, one of the longer books in the Bible, it takes a while to get there. I have a fear of heights. I don't like heights. I don't like even being up in the balcony. It makes me nervous sometimes to walk up there in the balcony. A few years back, probably about 10, 12 years back, we took our youth group, and I was a youth pastor at at a former church. We took our youth to St. Louis to do a mission trip. And the youth wanted to go up inside the Gateway Arch. Anybody ever been in the Gateway Arch? That's a scary booger. I don't like it. Number one, I'm afraid of heights. And number two, I'm claustrophobic. So that does not work to be in a tiny little compartment moving slowly and slowly up and to be afraid of heights. So let me give you some interesting phobias this morning. And I want you as a congregation to guess the phobia. Some of you may know these, some of you may not. So let's start. Does anybody know what poganogophobia is? It's the fear of beards. So some of you men out there, we may be afraid of you. Fear of beards. Taraphobia. Fear of bulls. So some of you that, you know. Xenoglossophobia. It's a fear of foreign languages. Bataphobia. That's not what you think. Bataphobia, fear of being close to high buildings. Didascalinophobia, some of you are very going to really have this phobia, didascalinophobia. It's the fear of learning and going to school. Some of you kids, if you don't want to go to school, you can tell your mom, I'm suffering from didascalinophobia. And they will look at you and like, what in the world are you talking about? Istrophobia, no, isotrophobia, fear of mirrors. I may be scary about what looks back at you when you look in the mirror. Geliophobia, fear of laughter. Lacanophobia, some of you may have lacanophobia. It's the fear of vegetables. <laughs> and metrophobia, I know some of you have metrophobia. It's a fear of poetry, so I don't know. What is your greatest fear this morning? What, what do you fear the most? And let me ask you more pointedly, what do you fear losing most in life what is that one thing that if you were to lose it in your mind you would think that your whole life is shattered and your life would not be worth living i want to give you a statement by archbishop william temple and i want this statement to linger out there for a while we'll come back to the statement but i want to just let it linger out there and i want you to think about his statement here's what he said i want you to wrestle with it He said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. And what he means by that, I think, is when you're alone and you have no other distractions from the world and it's just you by yourself, what do you find your mind thinking about? What do you daydream about? What what consumes the thoughts of your mind? And he says, whatever that is, Whatever it is when you're all alone that consumes your mind, 
that to you becomes what you worship. That becomes what you worship. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that question as we go through our story of Joseph this morning. I want to cover a lot of ground this morning. We've got to get through this book, and there's some parts that we can move quickly through. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to simply, first of all, just just read the narrative. We'll go through the narrative. I'll, I'll stop and give some comments on the way. But then I want to wrap back around, and I want to give us three applications or three implications of how this story applies to us personally today. That's what we're going to do. Now, remember last week was the big reveal. Last week was when the mask came off, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, said, it's I, Joseph. The brothers freak out, and he says, don't freak out. Three times he says, God's the one that sent me here. God has sent me here. God has done this. He he believed strongly that God had orchestrated these things. And so there was that beautiful reunion between Joseph and his brothers who had betrayed him 22 years earlier. And, and we, we ended up last week with them weeping and talking with each other, but there's still one piece left in the puzzle, and that is Joseph has to reunite with his father, Jacob. And so that's what we see this morning. We see the reunion of Jacob and Joseph. So let's explore scene one, the promise of provision. Let's pick up in chapter 45 of Genesis Starting in verse 16, we ended with verse 15 last week. They were kissing, they were weeping, they were, they were spending time together as brothers reunited. And now we have to focus in on how the message is going to get back to Jacob. So let's pick up in Genesis 45, verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts, and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. You may want to pay attention to that. The best of the land of Egypt. It's going to be repeated all throughout this story. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they said to him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now the secret is out. And Joseph goes to Pharaoh and tells him what's going on. And Pharaoh basically does something gracious. Pharaoh promises the best of the land. The land of Goshen. 
I'm going to provide the best of the land, the land of Goshen, for you and for your family. And so before they set back, what does Joseph do? Joseph gives his brothers a change of clothes. Now you may ask, well, what's the weird thing about a change of clothes? If you remember, this story of Joseph, the clothing tells everything. It's symbolic. How did this whole affair start 22 years ago? When they saw Joseph with the coat of many colors coming to them, they ripped off his clothes and they threw him in a cistern and they sold him into slavery and they put an animal's blood on those clothes and took it back and deceived their father. And now Joseph is giving them a change of clothes as a symbolic way of saying all is forgiven. It's all in the past. And then he gives Benjamin more clothes and more shekels and notice that his brothers don't get upset. His brothers don't get upset that Benjamin is getting preferential treatment. That's been their pattern all along. They, they don't throw Benjamin under the bus. They don't complain that he's getting preferential treatment. They understand that Joseph wants to show grace to his younger brother. But notice what Joseph tells them in verse 24. Brothers, as you go back, don't quarrel on the way. Now, why would they quarrel? Why would they be quarreling? Well, it's kind of been their pattern all along, but what are they going to have to go home and do? They're going to have to go home and confess to Dad that they lied to him the past 22 years. They're going to have to go up and own up to the sin that they lied about Joseph's death. And so Joseph knows human nature. Joseph knows human patterns, and he, he tells the brothers, Brothers, you've repented. You've changed. And as you're going back home to Dad, don't argue about who's going to throw who under the bus. Don't, don't bicker. Don't argue. Just go back and be honest men and face up to your dad. It's very similar to what Paul says in Colossians. Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but you must now put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on a new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul makes this argument that when you become a Christian, you, your old life is gone. You've put on a new garment. you put on a new life, and, and you're to walk in newness of life. And that's basically what Joseph is reminding his brothers. Listen, guys, that's your old way of living. That's your old way of life, but you're new men now. And so remember who you are, and as you go back to your dad, don't quarrel, walk in the newness of who you are and then they go home and they tell jacob the whole story and what does it say jacob got numb he got numb when he heard that joseph is still alive but then they had to convince him in verse 26 by showing him that all these wagons and everything had come back and then in verse 28 israel or jacob said it is enough translated enough said i'm convinced my worst fear was to die in my old age without having my, my sons with me, but now I get to go and die and see my favorite son, Joseph. That's scene one, the promise of provision in the land of Goshen. But let's go into scene two, chapter 46, verses 1 through 7, the faithfulness of Jacob's covenant God. Let's move into chapter 46, verses 1 through 7. 
So Israel, remember Israel is the same word as Jacob. God changed his name, so when it uses the word Israel there, at this point it's not talking about the nation, it's talking about the individual who would eventually become the nation, Jacob. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Jacob is about to leave the promised land, the land of Canaan, for the very last time and go to Egypt. But before he does, he goes to a place called Beersheba. You may ask, what in the the world is the importance of Beersheba? Why go to Beersheba? Well, in Genesis chapter 21, Beersheba was the sacred place where Abraham worshipped God and called God everlasting father. It's where Abraham, it was a sacred place for Abraham to worship God in Beersheba. In Genesis chapter 26, it's where his father Isaac went and worshipped God and built an altar to the Lord. So in Jacob's mind, Beersheba is a sacred place. It's the far most southern place before you actually leave the promised land and go to Egypt. And so before he leaves, he goes to the sacred place where his father and his grandfather has worshipped, showing that he is one in solidarity with his father and his grandfather. And the promise that God made to Abraham and the promise that God made to Isaac is the same promise that is made to Jacob. And he goes and he worships there before he leaves everything in the land of promise to go to Egypt. And it is there that the Lord says, don't be afraid. And God speaks. Now it's very interesting. This is the very last time God will speak in the book of Genesis. The next time he will speak is to Moses at the burning bush. There's an interesting bit of history there. This is the last time God is going to speak And he speaks to Jacob in the promised land right before he leaves to go to Egypt. The next time God is going to speak is when Moses is back in the promised land at the burning bush. Now, he gives him four promises. If you look at the four promises that God gives to Jacob, they start in verse 3. He said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For here's promise number one. There I will make you into a great nation. God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. The same promise he gave to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17 and Genesis 18. You will have a great nation. But here's the twist. Where is this great nation going to be birthed? Not in the promised land. In Egypt. He says, it's there that you are going to be a great nation. And what happens 400 years later? in Egypt. What do we find about the nation of Israel? Well, Exodus 1-7 says this, 
But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. In Egypt, God's going to birth the nation of Israel. And by the time the Exodus happens, most scholars believe there may be an over 2 million people. And it's going to be in Egypt where God's going to birth the nation. The nation of Israel is not birthed in the promised land. They're birthed in Egypt. That's a twist. But here's promise number two. God says there in verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. What a great promise. God promises his very presence to Jacob in going down there. Now, remember back in Genesis 28, when Jacob had fooled Esau and he had to go on the run from Esau, where does Jacob go? The first place Jacob flees is to Beersheba. And then he moves on a few places later to Haran. And it was there that the ladder from heaven appeared and God spoke to Jacob for the very first time. What did God say to Jacob the very first time? In Genesis 28, 15, this is what God spoke to Jacob. Many, many years earlier when he was on the run from, e- from Esau, when he was there and he saw the ladder from heaven, this is what God said to him. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So God made the promise to Jacob many, many years before and God's reiterating that promise. Jacob, I'm with you. I'm promising my presence. I will go with you. I will be with you. I myself, notice how emphatic it is in the original language there. I myself will go down and be with you in Egypt. I'm promising my very presence. Well, here's promise number three. I will also bring you up again. I will bring you up again. Now, this could be in reference to Jacob's bones being taken out of Egypt and actually being buried in the promised land. And we know in Genesis 50, that's what happens. Joseph, after Jacob dies, asks permission of Pharaoh, and those bones are allowed to be buried in the promised land. But it could be a reference to the Exodus. The Exodus. What would happen in the Exodus? Over two million of the Israelites would come up out of Egypt and be able to repopulate into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. That it would be 430 years later. And Jacob's never going to get to go back there alive. His bones will go back there, but his, his offspring will be able to rise up from Egypt and go back to the promised land. And then here's promise number four. Joseph's hand will close your eyes. In other words, this is a way of saying, Jacob, God says to Jacob, Jacob, you're going to die in peace as an old man, and your son's going to be right by your side, and when you're going to die in peace, he's going to be the final one to close your eyes. It's, it's the thing that, that Jacob wanted his entire life was to have that peaceful death. Now, don't be alarmed because we're not going to look at verses 8 through 27 because it's a bunch of weird names in a genealogy. But genealogies are important. And let me just draw attention to the genealogy here. What it is is it's a genealogy of all of Jacob's sons and it comes down to 70 at the very end. 70 of his entire family are leaving the promised land, and going to live in Egypt. And so you've got this genealogy, and 70 is a perfect number, a number of completion. And so the hope of the world, the promise of the nations, this this promise that God would bless the nations, is not going to happen in the promised land. It's going to be when this family leaves everything that they, they felt was dear to them and goes and lives in this unknown land, the land of Goshen. This, this strange place in Egypt. So let's continue going through the story here. Let's look, scene three, 
Joseph and Jacob are reunited. So let's skip down to chapter 46, verse 28. We'll skip all the weird names. You can go back and try to figure out those yourself. Chapter 46, verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him. How fitting it is that Judah goes ahead. Because Judah was the one, if you remember last week, that, that was willing to be a sacrifice for Benjamin. And, and now he's the leader of the family. He sends Judah ahead of him to show Joseph the way before him in Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariots and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you're still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to you, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth until now, both we and our fathers, in order that we may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So here's the reunion. It's a sweet Beautiful reunion. Jacob comes out, um, old man, and Joseph meets him in the chariot, and they kiss and they weep, and it says it was a good while. This reunion after all these years, father and son are reunited, and Judah's the one that brings them together. Remember, Judah was the one that was the ringleader in selling Joseph into slavery, and now he's the one that's bringing his father and his son, or his brother and his father back together. But then Joseph does something here. He coaches his family on how to deal with being in Egypt. And basically he says, here's what you need to do, guys. Just tell the truth that you're shepherds. I know that's going to be hard for you. Really hard. Because, Dad, your name means deceiver. And my brothers, they're deceivers. And I know it's been really hard the past 22 years for you guys to tell the truth. But when you go into Egypt and the Pharaoh asks you, what's your occupation? Don't lie. Just say we're shepherds. And here's why you say you're shepherds. Because shepherds, they didn't care about shepherds. Shepherds weren't a threat. They weren't a threat to the food source. They weren't a threat politically. They weren't, a, they weren't coming in and demanding jobs. All they were asking for was some marginalized land on the outside of Egypt so we can raise our sheep. And that's a... That's an amazing thing, because all the while, Joseph has been preparing this land of Goshen. It's repeated four times in here. Joseph, behind the scenes, has been preparing the land of Goshen. And so shepherds were considered scum in Egypt, and so it wasn't a big deal. They weren't a threat, and so it would work out perfectly for his family to settle as shepherds in Goshen, the best of the land. But still, Pharaoh had to give the permission. He had promised it to Joseph, but he still had to interview the dad. And so the next scene we see is where Jacob, the the, the patriarch, and Pharaoh meet. And finally, Pharaoh gives them the land of Goshen. So let's look at scene four, the promise of provision fulfilled. Let's go into chapter 47. I told you we're covering a lot of chapters. Chapter 47, let's go through verses 1 through 12. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh... My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, We are your servants or shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. 
The Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they've not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now, it's interesting because Pharaoh thinks he's the one that's actually blessing Jacob, but it says twice Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Remember, the patriarchs are always a blessing to those they come in contact with. And and Pharaoh asks a very interesting question. So how old are you, Jacob? How old are you? He says, well, I'm 130 years old, and it's not as old as my dad, Isaac, and it's not as old as my grandpa, um, Abraham, and I haven't lived as long as I'd like, but few and evil are the days of my life. I haven't lived long, and it's been kind of evil. A weird way to answer. Next time somebody asks you how old you are, few and evil have been the days of my life. Okay, what does Jacob mean? Well, I think he's being a realist here. He knows that for the majority of his life, he's been a sinner, he's been on the run, he's been a conniver, he's been a manipulator. But here at the end of his life, he says, you know what, I am what I am because of God's grace. God has seen fit to remove me from the land of promise, and now he's settling me in Goshen. I've been reunited with my son. Our family's reunited. I know I've been evil, but God's been good. I think that's kind of what Jacob's saying there. I'm not exactly sure, but I think what he's realizing is in his old age, yeah, he's lived a pretty evil life, but God is gracious. And then in verse 11, Jacob, I mean, Joseph actually gives them a title deed. The original language really conveys the idea that that Joseph gives them the title deed to the land of Goshen, which was what? The best land in all of Egypt. That's going to be very important come the Exodus. Egypt is a large area, but the Israelites are getting to, to settle in the best of the land, and they have a title deed to that. Joseph's giving that to them. And then finally, in verse 12, Joseph is providing for them. Joseph, again, emerges as the provision. He provides, he's the savior of his family in that kind of picture of Jesus. And so, here we have it. This family of 70 people is finally nestled in the land of Goshen, the best of the land, and all is good. Now, what's the main point of all these stories? Why is it here in Genesis, and why did the Holy Spirit inspire it? Well, here it is in a nutshell. Here's what I think the main point is. It's this. As you try to live as a Christian in this difficult world, God faithfully provides for you. Egypt was a difficult place. Our world is a difficult place. But as God's people, God promises to provide for you. Now, what do I mean by you're living as a Christian in a difficult world? Why is this world difficult? Listen to what Peter calls us. If you're a Christian, this is what Peter calls you. First Peter 2, 9-11. You are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. God has called us out of darkness into light, but notice what Peter calls us. Exiles. Sojourners. Which really means that we're not of this world. We are just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are sojourners in a land that's not our own. We are just passing through. We're strangers in a strange land, if you will. We as Christians are strangers in a strange land. We are strangers because we are God's people, and we're in a strange land because this is not really our home. We're just passing through. So let me give you three applications this morning that I think we can take away from this passage of Scripture that impact us Personally, And here's application number one. Don't get so settled in this world because your true home is in heaven. You see, Jacob's true home was the promised land. But he never got to go back there. He had to be uprooted and he had to go live in Goshen. Temporary. Did Abraham ever have permanent roots? No. Did Isaac ever have permanent roots? What did they live in? They lived in tents. Is a tent permanent? You can kind of put down stakes in a tent, but if if wind comes and blows your tent, those of you that have been camping, sometimes tents aren't permanent. They never lived in a permanent home. Philippians 3.20 says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's the tension. Here's the tension of where we live. We as Christians have one foot in this world, and we really have one foot in heaven because it's our true home, and we're living in the tension between those two, and we're not home yet. We're not home yet, and we're still here in this world, and so here's the temptation for us that are in this world and though we're not home yet. The temptation is is that we can get so settled in this world, we can get so entrenched in this world, we can get so enamored with this world, so in love with this world, that we begin to put down roots in this world and we begin to live for this world as opposed to living for our true home. We become friends with the world. As James says, James 4, 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, about the patriarchs. Hebrews eleven nine through 10. Speaking of Abraham, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What was Abraham looking forward to? The city that God is building, heaven. His true home was in heaven. He was always looking forward to heaven. He knew that he just lived in tents, but his real eyes were on that future home that God had provided that had a foundation. So by comparison, you see, we're aliens. We're strangers in a strange land, and and we have to live in the tension of being here, but let's not put down roots here because this is not our true home. And here's the issue. So many of us 
can become permanently settled in this world, that we begin to look like the world, and the world becomes everything to us, and we don't realize that, yes, we have to live here. Christ hasn't taken us out of the world, but this is not our true home. So don't put down roots. Don't become too permanently settled in this home because it's not your true home. Your true home is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior coming to take us back to where our true home is. And so application number one is it can sometimes be dangerous to put down roots in this place because this is not our true home. And we live with that tension. So keep our eyes on the true home that God has prepared for us. Not in tents, but heaven. Here's application number two. Whatever you often fear losing can turn out to be your greatest idol. Go back to chapter 46, verse 3, and listen to what God says to Jacob. The last time God speaks to Jacob, the last time God speaks. Chapter 46, verse 3, what does he say? I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Now, why would Jacob be afraid to go down to Egypt? Well, he is leaving everything he held valuable. He's leaving his home, his family, his comfort, his security, the promised land. Everything that was Jacob's identity, God said, you're leaving that to go to a weird place, Goshen, the land of Egypt outside the promised land. You're leaving everything behind. And what does Jacob do? Does Jacob hold on to that? Does Jacob say no? No, he goes and he worships at Beersheba and he gives his life, he gives an altar or builds an altar and sacrifices to the Lord and then he goes. He doesn't hold on to what he feared losing because he realizes when you hold on to something that you fear losing, whatever you're holding on to, that could become an idol. It could become an idol. What did I say earlier from Archbishop William Temple? Your religion is what you do with your solitude? Let me ask it again. What do you fear losing most? What do you spend all of your time and your energy on? What captivates your imagination? What do you find yourself daydreaming about And these may be good things. But if these good things, these things that consume you, elevate themselves to a point where they take allegiance over Jesus, then those have become an idol in your life. And you begin to fear losing those things. What are your most uncontrollable emotions? Is there something so important to you that you absolutely have to have it That if it was stripped away from you, if it was taken away from you, if you lost it, your life would feel like it's not worth living. I can no longer go on living because this has been taken away from me. Whatever that thing was that you fear losing, that's an idol. That's an idol. What has control over your heart? If Jesus does not have control over your heart, then anything else is an idol. So I want you to think about those things that you that we often fear losing most, they may actually be an idol that we're cherishing in our hearts. Jacob left everything and he followed the Lord to Goshen and he wasn't willing to hold on to that which he feared, leaving. And here's the third application. The ultimate promise for you is not material blessings, 
It's not excellent health. It's not powerful success. But it's Christ himself as your greatest treasure. Where did Jacob get to settle? The land of Goshen. I mean, you can't not read the story and not hear repeated over and over. The best of the land. The best of the land. The land of Goshen. The best of the land. That's the point. They get the best of the land. They get to settle in this land. And then after 400 years, they become so prosperous, so blessed, that now they're a nation of 2 million people, that they're a threat to Pharaoh. And that precipitates the exodus. But here's what we often think. We often think that God has got to, he's obligated to bless me with material wealth, with possessions, with prosperity, with, with, with excellent health. God has got to bless me with these things. And we bought into the prosperity gospel that says that God never wants me to be sick. God never wants me to be poor. God never wants me to be suffering. God never wants to me to be marginalized. God never wants me to lack. And so therefore, God is obligated to bless me. We buy into that. But I want you to notice what God promises. What does God promise Jacob? Go back to chapter 46, verse 4. Look at it again. It's probably the most powerful statement in this entire story. But we kind of just pass over it because it becomes so familiar to us. Look at what God says to him. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Jacob, I'm promising you myself and that's enough even if you never have the land of goshen wherever i am and if you're with me and i'm with you that's enough i'm promising my very self you see your greatest treasure is not the gifts that god gives as great as those are your greatest treasure is not the blessings that god gives you as great as those are your greatest treasure is jesus himself He's the treasure. He's the pearl of great price. He is that buried treasure that we go and sell everything to follow him. He becomes our chief obsession because he's worth it. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 73, 25 through 26. And and as you read these psalms, sometimes you just read them and you wonder, can I truly say this psalm? Listen to what the psalmist says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can you say that? There's nothing else on this earth that I desire more than Jesus. At the end of the day, where's your gaze? Where's your focus? Is your focus on your problems? Is your focus on, I'm not getting enough blessings. God's not being fair. Things aren't working out. I'm sick. Blah, blah, blah. Is everything focused upon you or is your gaze turned out to Jesus and said, you know what? The most important thing is that I can hear the words of my Savior say, I myself will be with you wherever you go. And for the Christian, that should be enough. The very presence of Jesus Christ. Is he the source of joy? Or are those idols vying for your attention? Are, are, you, are you clinging to idols 
to give you what only Jesus can give you. You see, you've got to come to the point where you realize that Jesus is more beautiful, Jesus is more captivating, Jesus is more glorious, Jesus is more alluring, Jesus is more mesmerizing. Use whatever adjective you want to use. He is more glorious than anything else in this world, and you only want him. Everything else fails in comparison. So let me ask you to do something. Let me challenge you to do something. Look to Jesus, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus until that grip that you have on those idols begins to relax. And you're no longer gripping those things and looking at those things, but your gaze is on Jesus and his glory. Do you realize that the land of Goshen is not a place? The land of Goshen is a person. Jesus is the land of Goshen. For the Christian, Jesus is the land of Goshen. He's the best of the land. He's where we go for security. He's where we go for provision. He's where we go for rest. He's where we go for protection. Jesus is the land of Goshen. It's not, yes, for, the, for those people in that day and age, it was a place on the marginal outside parts of Egypt where they got to go. But for us, symbolically, Jesus is the land of Goshen. And listen to what this Jesus says to you this morning. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Listen to the invitation from Jesus. He says this to all of us this morning. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm Goshen. I'm the land of Goshen. Come to me. Come to me. So would you come to Jesus this morning and forsake all of your idols and look to him as the best of the land, the only one that can provide, the only one that can satisfy, the only one that's worth following. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And as you engage the Lord this morning in prayer, and as you interact with Jesus, I want you to think specifically about any idols in your life that you may be grasping heavily onto, that you fear losing. And in the time of this moment, would you just ask Jesus to take your eyes off of your idols and put your eyes on him? Would you ask him to show you that he is the best of the land? That he is the Goshen? That he is the provision? That he is the treasure? And he's provided a home for you in heaven, and so don't put down roots on this earth. Would you spend some time in prayer this morning, asking the Lord, the sovereign Lord, to search your heart and to search your mind and to release you of any idols that you may be grasping on? so that you can give your full focus to Jesus Christ as your all in all. Would you spend some t- time in prayer, please? Is what you do with your solitude. In this time of solitude and quiet, what have you been thinking about? What have you been focusing on? Father, we come before you this morning, and we know that we live in a world that has so many distractions so many temptations, so many things that vie for our attention. 
And Lord, many of these things are good things, Father. We, we, we are thankful this time of year for the good things that you blessed us with, our families, our health, our jobs, our relationships. And, and Father, you've been so good and you've, you've blessed us with those. But Lord, when we elevate those things to a position of an idol, and we've taken our eyes upon, off of you, Jesus, as the land of Goshen. So Jesus, will we come to you? We are weary. We are heavy laden. We are guilty. We're burdened. We're helpless. We're weak. We have nowhere else to go, Jesus, but to you. And we are so thankful, Lord, of the promise from your very lips, Jesus, your very lips, I will give you rest. Take my yoke. The burden is easy and my yoke is light. Would many this morning take their burdens and their pain and their sorrow and their sin and would they lay it upon Jesus who is more than willing and more than able to take our yoke. So thank you, Jesus. I want you just to keep your heads bowed for just a little bit longer. And the praise team's going to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, just a few stanzas of that. And as we sing this, just spend some more time doing that, turning your eyes upon Jesus as they sing.